having failed to win four times, he didn't lose, but he didn't win four times, he would have done what any prime minister in Israel would have done or what a prime minister in the UK would have done had they lost or presidential candidate in the United States. He would have said to himself, I've served longer than any prime minister in the history of Israel. I can retire to my beautiful home in Caesarea and Caesarea and enjoy time with my family. Instead, he's refusing to do so. Had he done that, his own Likud party would easily form a new coalition, a stable one, comprised of like-minded right-wing parties, and sail smoothly into the future. And so we are beholden at the end of the day to the fate of one individual who's on trial. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 6, 2021. Natan Sachs is a Brookings Senior Fellow and the head of the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy, part of the Brookings Foreign Policy Program. He joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to talk about the results of the Israeli election, which were supposed to come into focus over the last couple weeks and have only clarified that there is a haze over the entire political system. We talked about what the dispute between the camps is about. Hint, Bibi Netanyahu. We talked about the many different factions and what they want and why they can't sit together easily in a government. We talked about the fact that Israel doesn't have a budget for the second year in a row. And we talked about whether anyone can pull a rabbit out of a hat and prevent the fifth election in two years. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 6th. Natan Sachs on the Israeli governance crisis. So, Natan, the Israeli elections took place more than a week ago, almost two weeks ago. And at the time, I said, I'll let's give it a couple days for things to clarify, and then we'll have Natan on to talk about the results. In the two weeks that have passed, I think it's safe to say that things have not clarified all that much. And so I want to start with your sense of what the major sources of uncertainty are here two weeks after this election. I mean, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, And you're right, not much is clear. What we do know is that no one has a clear majority. So first and foremost, Benjamin Netanyahu does not have a clear path to 61. And that's in part because his hope, the gambit he made of making one of the Arab parties, the Islamic party, potential kingmakers in his favor, that ran up against the part, the fact that on his very extreme right flank, there are those who won't accept that. And so his, his tent is simply too broad between the actually racist Itamal Ben-Gvir on the far right and the Islamic party whom he hoped would help him pass the 61. On the other hand, the change camp, as we know, is very it's an amalgam of disparate parties that has a very hard time coming together. So the sources of uncertainty come from what who might break their promise. If everyone keeps to their promise as as they were, it's very hard to see how a coalition is formed. Not completely impossible, perhaps, but very hard to see how a coalition is formed. If someone can bend their promises a little bit, then you might be able to imagine scenarios coming forward. One that seems to be the most likely, and I don't mean likely, I mean the most likely of unlikely things, 
is that Naftali Bennett from the right wing Yamina party might actually be able to deal with the center and some of the left and perhaps even become the next prime minister. To do that, he'd have to pass some hoops and he'd have to find a deal that would satisfy many of his voters, many of whom are, of course, very right wing. But if if there's one scenario that sort of may be possible, it's something involving Naftali Bennett. So what he intends to do and does he really mean to break with the right wing or with Netanyahu and do that? Or is he simply trying to leverage his position vis-a-vis Netanyahu? These are the kinds of questions that we simply don't have a clear answer to yet. All right. So let's back up and talk about the stalemate that has led to this. This is the fourth Israeli election in two years. It may be setting up the fifth election in two years. The Israelis don't have a government in a traditional sense. How did we get here? We got here because Israel went to the first of these four elections with a prime minister who was going to be indicted on three counts of corruption, including it ended up being one count of bribery. And that gave either cause or excuse for several parties to break with him, for several individuals to say they would not serve under him. Still in the first election, the day after the election, smart Alex, like me, wrote that Netanyahu, again, the political wizard, has pulled it off, despite the fact that he was uh, is going to be indicted. Uh, I was wrong, not for the first or the last time, because two things happened, and both of them rather flukish, if that's a word. The first is that Naftali Bennett, the same Naftali Bennett who might be prime minister under some scenarios, his party, the same Yamina, did not pass the minimum threshold of 3.25% in that election. I think it was 1,300 votes shy. Had he passed, Netanyahu would have had a clear majority. There would have been no second, third, or fourth election, and we would still be in Netanyahu's term. Instead, Bennett did not pass. And as a result, Netanyahu's block was at exactly 65, but that included five members of Avigdol Lieberman's party, your favorite politician in Israel. Avigdol Lieberman surprised everyone, certainly me, by not joining Netanyahu and refusing to sit with him, leading eventually to the possibility either of someone else forming a a government, then it was Benny Gantz was the candidate, or as Netanyahu forced himself a second election. I remember we were still obviously physically working at Brookings at the time, and I was over at our next door building and I met you. And you asked me during those waiting weeks, you know, how seriously to take this Lieberman thing. And the smart aleck that I am, I said, oh, this is nonsense. It's so they can figure it out. Lieberman has served under Netanyahu many times. I was wrong, partly because never underestimate the unpredictability of Victor Lieberman, and partly because they apparently have personal beef. Lieberman apparently blames Netanyahu for some of his own legal trouble, which is now passed. It's over. He's no longer under investigation. But Lieberman thinks perhaps that Netanyahu was behind some of that. And so to some complete chance and some petty or not petty grievances, that's what got us here. It remained here. We remain stuck because Israel is fundamentally divided. And it's divided. It has been divided for a long time over many very important issues, the Palestinians, uh, the territories, uh, religion and state. Now it's divided over two words, and they are Benjamin Netanyahu or Bibi Netanyahu, on whether he continues to be prime minister. So let me just point out the obvious. If Benjamin Netanyahu 
having failed to win four times, he didn't lose, but he didn't win four times, he would have done what any prime minister in Israel would have done or what a prime minister in the UK would have done had they lost or presidential candidate in the United States. He would have said to himself, I've served longer than any prime minister in the history of Israel. I can retire to my beautiful home in Caesarea and Caesarea and enjoy time with my family. Instead, he's refusing to do so. Had he done that, his own Likud party would easily form a new coalition, a stable one, comprised of like-minded right-wing parties, and sail smoothly into the future. And so we are beholden at the end of the day to the fate of one individual who's on trial. So when you say Israel is divided, which is obviously true, Israel has been divided for really since 1977. It's more the norm than the exception in the in their state of affairs in modern Israel. And yet it is only in the last couple of years that Israel is not able to put together a government. I mean, it's divided along left-right lines. It's divided along religious secular lines. It's divided between the Jewish majority and the and the Arab minority. But these have never, these divisions, and it's today divided between people who want Bibi out and people who don't, but these are not divisions that have prior to the past two years prevented the formation of a government. What is it about the current state of division that takes us from the land where you can form a coalition, maybe it's only got 61 or 62 votes out of 120, but it's a, maybe a bare majority. It may be a bitter division, reflect a bitter division of the society. It may reflect a the strangest of strange bedfellows sometimes, but you can form a government and now you can't. What's changed? It's a great question. I think a lot of things have changed. Part of it is this individual issue. It's about Netanyahu. And he's not just one person. He's, he's the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history and a very, very able politician and a dominant force in Israeli political life. There are a lot of young Israelis who don't remember much prior to Netanyahu's era. And he's been starting as leader of the opposition in 1992 or three. He's been a major part of the scene almost without interruption. So it's partly that. It, it really does boil down a little bit to it. And I'll return just to the point. If he steps aside, uh, a lot of what seems to be intractable divisions simply go away, not his positions go away. Quite the contrary, his positions would rule. Even if he chose handpicked his successor, that successor would have a very easy time forming a coalition. So in part, it really, it really does boil down to this individual who happens to have half of the Israeli electorate behind him or just shy of half. But there are also deeper issues, and it's partly a matter of partisanship that resembles a bit things that happen in the United States. There's a very strong sense of us against them. And it's not just between groups in society, which is not without precedent. And, and certainly in the 1980s, early 1980s, uh, it was at least as heated as it is now. But it is also between a lot of the citizenry and some of the institutions. Netanyahu, who was on trial, of course, has lashed out and has encouraged people around him to lash out very forcefully against the prosecution, the judiciary, 
so some things that we're seeing in the United States as well, and, and may have to do with similar social uh, phenomena, including social media and and the general fragmentation of social life and of media life that is true in the United States, I think is true in Israel as well. I'd also add one or two other issues. One is that in the past, I mentioned the 1980s, the precedent, which is not really precedent, but the closest we had in the 1984 election, then the two blocs, the left and the right, led by the Likud, Netanyahu's party, but then headed by Tzrak Shamir, and Labour, then headed by Shimon Peres, came out almost to an exact tie, or their blocs came into exact ties. And partly with the nudging of the president of the country, usually a symbolic figure, they came into a grand coalition agreement with rotation at the prime minister's office. Two years uh, first for Shimon Peres, who had the slightly larger faction, and then two years for Yitzhak Shamil. And, and so it is a four-year government, four-year cabinet. It's the last one to actually serve its full term. It was very successful in some ways. In particular, it tackled an enormous economic crisis. Israel, uh, 1984, had over 400% inflation, not a typo, 400%. This government managed to bring it down, and it withdrew Israeli territories from much of Lebanon, uh, where it had been since the invasion of, in 1982. On the other hand, and other issues, including negotiations with Jordan or any kind of movement on peace, it was stuck, and it was known as the National Paralysis Government instead of the National Unity Government. That was partly allowed, you know, in the 1980s, a lot of this kind of near parity between left and right was arbitrated by parties that were not committed to left or right, and in particular the ultra-Orthodox parties. At the time, they were not really associated with the right wing. Uh, they were not leftists either, but they, they basically would trade their vote for the things they cared about, which is, of course, legitimate in politics. Today, they are firmly in the Netanyahu camp. They see themselves as part of the right wing, and they do so mostly because their voters see themselves very much as part of the right wing. And so that has changed a lot too. We have very we have much fewer voters who are genuinely floating between the two camps. I want to talk about two oddities of this election outcome that seem to me to have pretty profound implications. The first one which you've alluded to before is the fact that there are two right-wing parties that are part of the change coalition or change block, meaning they are they say they are not going to do business with Netanyahu or sit under him. But one of them at least also says it won't sit in a government run by the principal vote getter in the change block, which is Yair Lapid. And so uh, these two parties, one of which is the Naftali Bennett party, Yamina, and the other is the Gideon Saar party, uh, New Hope, which sounds like an episode of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. These are certainly right-wingers, but if they're going to sit in the government, it's going to be a government of the left, center-left, and center. And that's in addition to a third right-wing party that won't sit with Netanyahu, which is the Avigdor Lieberman group. And so I, I guess I'm curious whether realistically there's any business, any other than forming a government that's not headed by Netanyahu, 
what does a government that it ranges from the left-wing parties to Saar, Bennett, and Lieberman, what business do they actually do? Is, is it just a government that sets up and then can't do anything? Or is there some, some type of, of governance agenda that you could imagine such a coalition actually having? That's a great question. And I can imagine a few things. So the first thing, and this is a bit flippant, but the first thing is to get Netanyahu out of the prime minister's office. And it's sad, but that would be item number one, and it would be the really reason for being for, for this coalition and the reason that they would join together in such a strange, grand coalition with these bedfellows that they would never, in, in other circumstances, consider cooperating with. That's the first thing. The second is, of course, you know, we're in a special time at the moment, so they would uh, try to do what is necessary to bring the economy in Israel back in a post-pandemic world, assuming we are in a post-pandemic world, and Israel is slightly ahead of the curve because of vaccinations. But the damage during the pandemic was enormous, of course. I, I'm guessing in the United States, we're, we're only beginning to figure out the damage as well. Social damage, economic damage, a year of Zoom, and you know I don't need to get into it, but families, businesses collapsing, uh, people losing their livelihood, livelihood or their dignity. This is going to be a very difficult time. I'm not sure that coalition is necessarily up to the task, but that was something they might try to do. I would add another strange thing. This might sound strange, but I think this might be uh, high on their agenda and might be a smart move. You know, Israel is right now, and it's very, very appropriate for lawfare. Israel is really in a crisis moment with its legal system. It's not just Netanyahu. It is also Netanyahu who's been attacking the judiciary and the prosecution, especially, with the simple claim that this, in fact, today, he made that claim outside of court because the evidentiary portion of his trial began today. He made the claim that this is these are trumped up charges to depose a government, in other words, a coup by the deep state. And accusations of the deep state, with that phrase, in fact, deep state, these things have been circulating in Israel with great uh, energy. And so there's there's a real problem. Now, we should remember, after all this, half of Israel voted for Netanyahu repeatedly. There are a lot of Israelis who are sure these are trumped up charges. And so there's a real crisis here, but it's not just him. It comes on the, on the backdrop of very widespread criticism against the judicial system, but in particular, the Supreme Court, and especially with a special function of the Supreme Court in Israel, which is the High Court of Justice. It has two roles. It's the High Court of Appeals and also the High Court of Justice. As the High Court of Justice, it has basically assumed for itself the right of judicial review and administrative review, partly based on basic laws, which which in the American equivalent would be articles of, of the Constitution, which Israel doesn't quite have, but also with interpretation and often quite broad interpretation. So some of the accusations that you can hear in the United States will be very familiar to your listeners, of course, more than for me, of judicial overreach and of legislating from the bench. All that is very, very common in Israel and without a clearly drafted constitution, perhaps with more merit in Israel. And I point this out because not only is it are these longstanding critiques, they come from many different quarters of society. And in particular, if you think of how the Knesset is constructed right now, they come from many of the parties who oppose Netanyahu, all the right-wing parties that you mentioned, including in particular Yamina, 
led by Naftali Bennett and Gidon Saar's new party and Gidon Saar himself. These are vociferous critics of the Supreme Court, people who have, in fact, campaigned on the idea of reforming the judiciary. So what might an agenda on that look like? I would not be shocked if they, and in fact, members of the change coalition like Yair Lapid's party, decided to try and draft a compromise consensus reform of the judiciary that would clarify what is the role of the High Court of Justice, what is it's under its purview, what is its power for judicial review, and under what circumstances might the Knesset override a disqualification, for example, of legislation by the Supreme Court. Right now, there is no mechanism. The Supreme Court has sort of final say by edict, in a sense. This can be very dangerous, of course, in the wrong hands. And they may try and come to some compromise where there is reform, but it is more limited than the right wing would want. And perhaps as a way of saying we are now uh, moving past the Netanyahu era and entering an era where we can at least in consensus come to some kind of agreement on the rules of the game moving forward so that this fundamental question, and it really is a very big one in Israel, can be put aside. You know, I wouldn't put too much stock in how successful it will be to put it aside, but that might be a major constitutional, literally constitutional move that such a coalition might attempt to do. That would be an, a titanic accomplishment if you could get any bill to do that to achieve support from from anywhere from the quite far right to the quite far left that would make up such a government, no? You will not get the far left on board on this. Uh, Meretz and probably Labour would not be on board for some of this, although some people in, in Labour would be perhaps. But we shouldn't overstate the importance of the far left or the left in the case of Labour. Yeshatid by Lapid is the core of sort of the center left. I'm quite sure there are members of the Yeshatid who would find common ground with a lot of the critique that Gidon Saar and others are making. I'm not sure it's enough of them. I'm not trying to say I would bet on a success of such a judicial reform bill. And it would depend on how Yair Lapid thought it would be perceived in the center left. Would it be popular enough? But I will just say that on the simple merits of the issue, I'm not sure it's impossible to find some common ground. It would demand compromise not only from the center left, it would also demand a lot of compromise from the right wing because they would have to, of course, agree to judicial review and to a rather limited ability by the Knesset to override it, especially if they wanted any of the luminaries of the judicial system itself to be on board, which would be very important for the central left. But if you got some of the luminaries of the judicial branch or retirees to say, yes, this is acceptable, actually, and will at least give rules of the game, even if I don't love it, that could give cover for ELP to do it. But for that, the right wing, like Bennett, like Sa would have to agree. And that's not easy at all. And it's not easy also because the Supreme Court, it's not just that they have issues with the merit. It's also that they use it as a very uh, good foil, right? This is the dragon that they constantly enjoy slaying because it's, of course, the Supreme Court's uh, fault that Israel doesn't do any number of things that the far right wants uh, vis-a-vis the Palestinians, although the Supreme Court has not stopped many things, including settlements and other issues, but it has often precluded some of the more extreme excesses, and that the right wing has attacked. So the right wing would have to give up on a wonderful political foil. 
So I'm, I'm not suggesting by any means that this is likely to succeed. But if you ask me what kind of agenda could such a coalition imagine for the day after Netanyahu, I'm not completely sure that's out of the question. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about the other electoral oddity of this current situation, which is that I think for the first time in our lifetimes, and more importantly, in the lifetime of the state of Israel, it is not obvious that anybody can form a government without the support of one or the other party of Palestinian Israelis. That is either the so-called joint list, which is a coalition of Arab parties, or this breakaway party, the United Arab List, which is actually associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. So, you know, for a long time, there has been a weird taboo in Israeli society among, among the Zionist Jewish parties. You don't invite the Arab parties, which are not Zionist, into the government. And among the Arab parties, you don't serve in the government. You just work transactionally with the government to get resources and policies for your communities. It seems like that is breaking down. Enough. Netanyahu put out feelers to the United Arab List Party about whether it would potentially support uh, a Likud government, which it was potentially receptive to, although coy. And it's impossible to imagine the Change Coalition having a government without the support of at least one and maybe both of the Arab parties. And so my question is, is the taboo against both the Palestinian and Israeli parties being part of the government in an overt fashion or having them in the government, is that breaking down by force of mathematical necessity? In some ways, yes, but it's still very early to tell. And if, if it's happening, it's still very early in the process. I think the most important move in this regard, ironically, was Netanyahu's. Netanyahu saw an opening, I think, to do two things. The first is, and I don't know if he learned from Trump or not, but it was basically a Trumpist kind of move, which is to say the African-American voters vote overwhelmingly Democratic. I have a case to make to them that by being beholden to one party, they're losing out. If they play the field a bit better, they can get a much better deal. And I don't need to convince a big chunk of African-American voters to vote for me, just a little bit, and I'll gain quite a lot. I'll be flipping voters. And Netanyahu really changes tune dramatically. In the past, the Arab voters, in fact, themselves, the actual voters, but also certainly the sort of quote-unquote Arab parties, were again a political foil that he used to rally his base, a very effective political foil, one that he frequently used, uh, I think, recklessly. And suddenly in this round, he changes tune completely, that he could ran ads in Arabic. He jokingly referred to the fact that he meets voters who call him Abu Yair, so meaning the father of Yair in Arabic, his eldest son is Yair. It's not clear if people called him that in jest or not. But there was really a breaking of this taboo. But in particular, Netanyahu tried to do a second thing. Sorry, let me disqualify that. It's it's 
courting Arab votes was never taboo. So many parties, including the Likud in the past, have courted Arab votes and, in fact, gotten quite a bit uh, of support from the Arab community for a variety of different reasons. Of course, the, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the Arab community is, is diverse. It has different parts that are quite different from one another. And so Lieberman, for example, has quite a bit of support, relatively, in that community as well for, for esoteric reasons. But the second thing Netanyahu tried to do is to break up the joint list, the joint list which comprises, comprised four parties, including the joint Arab list, which is a different thing, but the joint list, or the United Arab List, as you mentioned, that's the Islamic party. The joint list included the Islamists, but also the communists and two nationalist parties. He broke away the Islamists from it uh, with them running on a platform saying, we are not beholden to anyone. We will negotiate with anyone for the sake of our voters and our policy preferences. And the fact that they managed to get into the Knesset, despite very strong opposition from the other Arab party, and really to the, to the, to the rage of the Arab, other Arab party, this is important. And the fact that Israel is waiting to hear from Mansour Abbas, who's head of, of this Islamic party, uh, about who he supports, whether Netanyahu or not, these, these are important precedents. Whatever the cause for them, I think it is very positive in the future. I'll just qualify. In some ways, the taboo is not broken, however. Uh, Netanyahu, if he had enough to offer Mansour Abbas, and if Mansour Abbas really would go that extra mile and actually bring the Islamic party to support Netanyahu, Netanyahu could now have a coalition. The math would work. But he cannot do that because he cannot square the circle between Mansour Abbas and his very, very extreme right-wing flank in the what's known as religious Zionist party. Pause a second. I don't think that math is right. Well, he has 59 without Ram. And if you add the Ram, he... 59? I think he has 55 who recommended him... 53. But, but then if you add, or less, even 52. But then if you add Bennett uh, and the others, he would pass it. So he would, he would oh, need Oh, I Bennett. see. So, so with, 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 with Bennett. Bennett. Correct. Okay, okay. Yeah, which is an assumption. You're right. It's not obvious that he would have it. But with Bennett, in theory, he would have it. Now, and then, then it would put Bennett in a difficult position. But uh, let me put it this, uh, this way. Bennett has been dealing, as you mentioned, with the change block. The change block, and especially Yair Lapid, have been very suspicious of Naftali Bennett, thinking that what Bennett is actually doing is playing them so that he can up his price with Netanyahu because Bennett's voters are very right-wing. And so if he plays with, with Lapid, gets a good offer from Lapid, Netanyahu panics, as he is known to do in Israeli politics. He offers Bennett the moon. Um, maybe even rotation as prime minister down the road and, and also membership in the Likud itself, which Bennett would love, and a few other things, which perhaps Netanyahu has already offered Bennett. And that that's really Bennett's game, that he's not actually going to go with the change block. Now, if that's the case, Netanyahu would have to have a coalition with Bennett to offer, and that could depend on Mansour Abbas. But it depends not only on Mansour Abbas, but on the very far extreme flank of Netanyahu, which has already said they will simply not cooperate with anything with the Islamic Party and they would prefer opposition in a fifth election. So in that sense, it hasn't worked. And uh, one more caveat, and I'll stop on that. The change block, quote unquote, even if it dealt with Bennett and perhaps even was led by Bennett, it maybe perhaps could do that without uh, the joint Arab list uh, or the joint list, that it's, as it's known, the non-Islamic portions, if the ultra-Orthodox broke rank with Netanyahu. Since Naftali Bennett himself his, um, is modern Orthodox and is previously the leader of the National Religious Party, perhaps it's not impossible. What they said today at the president's residence when recommending Netanyahu as prime minister did not seem favorable to that option. 
But down the road, if Bennett has a bare majority of some kind, I would not rule out that the ultra-Orthodox would say, there's nothing wrong with Naftali Bennett per se, we can join his government. Okay, so all of this leads to the muddle with which we started. And we have tomorrow, I suppose, which we're recording on Monday, so Tuesday as as people are listening, the president, Ruvi Rivlin, is supposed to announce who he is assigning to try to form a government. Given that he has said today he doesn't see anybody having a path to doing it, what is the president's move here? So I generally don't know. The path of least resistance would to be to give it to Netanyahu because Netanyahu has more recommenders. But that's completely ad hoc rule. That's not written anywhere. The law states that the president needs to task one of the members of Knesset who has agreed to serve as prime minister with forming a coalition. That's it. It needs to be someone in the president's judgment who has the best chances of forming a coalition. doesn't matter how many recommenders he has, and it doesn't need to be even the head of a party. He could ask any member of Knesset who has agreed to serve. By tradition, it's usually the head of the largest party who goes first, or at least the person or the person with the largest number of recommenders. Both happen to be Benjamin Netanyahu in this case. So he might go that route. On the other hand, Netanyahu is on trial, and it started in earnest today. And besides, if you think of the chances, it it doesn't seem clear how Netanyahu forms a coalition uh, without defectors from other parties, whom he doesn't have at the moment. And so it may be that President Rivlin decides to task Yair Lapid because it's in fact possible that Yair Lapid has a better chance. Let me just clarify, not a better chance to head the government, but perhaps a better chance to form it. Because in fact, the person tasked with forming a coalition does not actually have to head it. They can then uh, suggest a government that includes someone else as prime minister, for example, Naftali Bennett. All that was a lot of words to tell you that I don't know. He, his last move, and he hinted that he might do this at some point, is also to return it to the Knesset, to say to the Speaker of the Knesset, no one has a clear chance, and therefore I task the Knesset with coming up with someone. And then... Anyone, any member of Knesset can come to the president with 61 signatures saying, we support this man as prime minister, and then they are tasked officially. And if no one does, we go to fifth election probably in the fall. If you were any member of the Knesset today, and you got to play their hand, whose hand would you want to play? From a strictly poker point of view, I think Bennett is in the pole position right now. Despite having won only seven seats out of 120. Correct. Because um, I guess Netanyahu is another possibility. But Bennett is the one with the most right now. That could evaporate very quickly. And Netanyahu is the shrewdest player here. He's been there the longest also. So maybe Netanyahu is the right answer. Uh, But Bennett at the moment is in the pole position simply by virtue of the fact that he can break the tie. Or it seems like maybe he can break the tie. But as you pointed out, it's, it's not obvious that he can. But in that sense, you know, you have, for example, Yair Lapid, who, who has the second largest faction in the Knesset, has already said, I believe publicly, that he offered a rotation coalition with Bennett where Bennett goes first. He offered Bennett the prime ministership. And Gidon Sal has made clear that he sees Bennett as the one with the best chances to do so, although he did not recommend him to the president in the end. So Bennett may be in the best position, but the results, the simple math is not 
simple at all for Bennett either. And I would just add that the far left, Meretz, for example, would have a very hard time supporting Bennett as prime minister. They may abstain or something, but it would be very hard for them to do it. So as a sign of the times, I'm, you know, I might say, no one. I don't know. They, they, they're in a position, in a very difficult position. Let me give you some winners as, as a second best answer. Yair Lapid is not in a bad position, although he may not be able to form a coalition, and that doesn't bode well for his chances of ever doing so, because he should be the leader now of the opposition. He nonetheless has been true to his word in opposing Netanyahu. He did not suffer the fate of Benny Gantz, his erstwhile partner who joined Netanyahu and suffered badly from that, and has also shown a sort of a political maturity and the willingness to step aside. And even in this offer to Bennett, which sounds sort of odd, that's the kind of thing that many of his voters would say, yes, that's what I expect him to do. We need to first remove Netanyahu. So he's not in a bad position as well. Can I add something? You know, you asked me before, what would a new coalition do? And and this re- relates to Lapid as well. You know, one of the things that they would do, and this will sound very trivial, is pass a budget. I wanted to use an F word there. It doesn't sound trivial. We we can't do it in the United States, predictably, either. For, a, for a, an American audience, the inability of the Israeli government to pass or the unwillingness of the Israeli government to pass a budget will sound very familiar. Yes, and and the unwillingness is exactly the way to put it. So by Israeli law, you know, here in Washington, uh, if the United States doesn't pass a budget for political reasons, then you see all sorts of furloughed government uh, employees, you know, with yoga mats walking around town aimlessly. In Israel, that doesn't happen. So Israel right now has not had a budget since 2019. So it's already in its second year with no official state budget. That is, of course, unprecedented. By Israeli law, if a budget is not passed uh, by, I believe, three or four months, so by March or April, the coalition falls automatically. New elections are called. And in fact, that's exactly why Netanyahu chose not to pass a state budget. That was his only way of avoiding the latest agreement he had with Benny Gantz for rotation in the prime minister's office. Had he called election with another excuse, Benny Gantz would have automatically become prime minister. But there was one loophole that Benny Gantz forgot to close. And that was if they do not pass a budget, new elections are called without that rotation. And so Netanyahu simply agreed to have the state operate for its second year now with no budget, just to have elections and to stay as head of a caretaker government. Now, by Israeli law, the government continues to operate with one twelfth of the last budget every month. So right now, April, Israel is operating on one twelfth of the 2019 budget. A few things have happened since 2019, like a global pandemic, an economic crisis, and a few other things. And with this kind of uh, one twelfth of a budget, you you can't plan anything new. You can't change the structure of the military, which the chief of staff wants to do. You can't reform anything in the education system. The country is stuck. It's not funny. This is no joke. And so simply having a government that would function, that would appoint people to positions, that would fill vacancies, and that would pass a budget and allow a largely state-governed education system to function uh, and a health system that has undergone everything it's undergone, just that would be enormous. We're going to leave it there. Natan Sachs, thank you for joining us today. Ben Wittes, thank you very much. My pleasure. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and this episode, whenever we have my Brookings colleagues on, it's a good illustration of what that means. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast, so tweet us, share us on Facebook, pin us on Pinterest, upvote us on Reddit, and for God's sake, leave a rating or review wherever you found us. We do not want to fall below the 3.25% electoral threshold. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and our merch, and you know you want it, is available at thelawfarestore.com. And as always, thanks for listening.